We used to every year go to the um, Haunted Hayride in McHenry. And never that, did that. It's a classic. I yeah, never did that one. That shit was really fun. It got meaner every year. Uh-huh. The like set pieces and the horror. Uh, they just got like a little nastier. Yeah. It used to be really charming, but still kind of spooky. But then it became like you know. Like, oh, then they've got the trailer, and it's, like, kind of like a meth lab, and yeah, just, typical, like, grimy, yeah. you know. Look, it's 2000s, you know. That's the 21st century vibe, you know. This used to be maybe, like, a nice little Americana, sort of, like, somewhat spooky little hayride. But no, this is the era of, you know, Saw. Right. Right? Yeah, and yeah. Fallujah. <laughs> and, yeah, <laughs> Saw and Fallujah. Never the same. That's right. After that. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along this route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Oh, I'll tell you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello again, folks. Welcome to another edition of The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Andrew Stasulis, and as always, I'm here with... Ryan Saunders. And... Eric Marsh, but you can call me by my dream name, King of the Evil Spirits of the Air. <laughs> I'll just, uh, yeah. That's, you could sure. call me by my dream job title, CEO of Dangertainment. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, we're off to a great start here. Uh, for those who don't know, The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of us selects a topic and the other two hosts are tasked with finding films that meet the topic, bring them to the table, we discuss and debate them. It was my turn to pick the topic this week, and I tasked my co-hosts with the best of the worst. We did a little bit of a different thing this week, I'd say. Uh, I, I tasked the, the fellas here with finding films that are much maligned, films that have been trashed, critically destroyed, uh, films that are very unpopular. And I specifically told them to, to, to look for films that were panned or disliked by people that they respect, you know, critics that they respect or film communities that they take part in. Uh, and to find a film from this, you know, a film that people consider to be awful, bad, useless, but one that they really like, one that they really admire or respect. And essentially, I told them to, to, to bring it like a case, you know, to bring their evidence that, that these critics were wrong, that the public got it wrong, and uh, to bring those to the, the table today for us to, to potentially reevaluate, to maybe make the case to me. So... With that being said, I think we'll get to opening statements. <laughs> now, Ryan, what did you bring? What are you trying to uh, resurrect, if you will? <laughs> Very nice. Yes, I have recently, beca- within like the last couple of years, become quite enamored with the eighth film in the Halloween franchise, Halloween Resurrection. And I think... In order to place Halloween Resurrection, I need to just talk a little bit about how 
the series worked up until that point. So there was the initial film and then the sequel, which is directed by Rick Rosenthal, who eventually then directed Halloween Resurrection. Carpenter tried to do the anthology format with Halloween 3. That fell apart. Then we got a string of um, really dreadful Halloween films, 4, 5, and 6, that have some charm. But they're films that, you know, once they enter again, we've talked about fourth installments before. When they, when they enter oh, yeah. the uh, fourth, fifth, and sixth zone, you could call it, of a franchise, there's a lot of, like, active mythologizing that they try to do. They're like, well, how can we deepen this? So they bring in all this bullshit, basically. And so one of the things that I think tarnishes those films is that they try to either position Michael Myers as this cosmic supernatural thing like they try to explain all of his like resurrections in those films away or they give him a backstory etc etc so then what they tried to do was they tried to delete those films by making h2o which is the seventh film and that's like with jamie lee curtis is back they're picking up the thread that she's michael myers sister and that film has a bunch of stars in it, right? There's like Josh Hartnett and um, Michelle... Joseph Gordon, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's in it. Michelle Williams is in it. And I, I really, really hate H2O. And a lot of my love for Resurrection comes from how it undermines and like throws out the aesthetics of H2O. I think H2O is desperate to be seen as a real movie. It's like very clean, it's very polished, it wants everyone to applaud it for being a little more serious and not as like goofy and silly as the 80s Halloween entries, right? I think it's a slog, I think it's like without any personality or character, I think it's an ugly movie. And I think it's a it's a real chore to get through. And it's kind of always confused me why people do like H2O so much. You know, people love the originals. Then they go and, well, fell off the rails, but H2O is cool. And I just, I, I, I don't agree. Resurrection, on the other hand, I think is a very fascinating film. A film very much of its time, but in a way that I find very enjoyable and not at all dated that I think is a, a pan that a lot of people throw on Resurrection. So to, well, I guess I should very briefly describe the beginning of Resurrection. It has an incredible flippant opening sequence where it's clearly a film that's tired of the franchise it's attached to and they go, okay, let's wrap up some loose ends here. We got to get rid of this like sibling storyline. So they've got Jamie Lee Curtis in a mental institution and they're like, let's just kill her off. Like, let's just get this over with. And they do. Within the first 10 minutes, we lose Jamie Lee Curtis. Michael kills her. She falls from the roof in this like hysterical slow-mo shot and she leaves the franchise. We're done with her. So now here we are back in Haddonfield and Busta Rhymes and Tyra Banks are starting a new reality TV show on their network called Dangertainment. The way the show is going to function is they're grabbing a group of residents from Haddonfield and attaching web cameras like over their ear and they're like sort of like wired with this um, kind of wi like a Wi-Fi pack basically. So they're not tethered to anything and they're all going to be exploring the Michael Myers house on Halloween and viewers will be able to tune in online and then it's sort of an interactive environment they can choose which cameras they're watching they can like do split screen and cut amongst all the different participants in the house initially in the film everyone starts getting spooked because they keep finding all these things in the house and there are things that 
kind of try to explain the trauma of Michael Myers. You've got a high chair that has, you know, straps that he would be tied down to, or there's a harness in the basement, or there's all his scary drawings he didn't. Evidence of abuse. But it all becomes a little bit too clean, and everyone starts to suspect, like, this is, you know, this, this all feels like it's been planted here, and that is true. And to me... One thing I love about Resurrection and we'll talk about is that it's taking that mythologizing from the series and kind of mocking it. It's like, oh, here's all this junk in the house that explains away Michael Myers' behavior. And this film says, no, no, this is all make-believe. And Michael Myers, who's been living in the basement of this house, then starts killing everyone for real without the people watching realizing that it's fake. And then that's another interesting dynamic that I think creates a lot of unique tension that is like absent from all the other sequels. Anyways, I have a lot of love for this film. I don't love it in an ironic way. I think it's really fascinating. I really like the way it looks. It does this really interesting thing where it shifts back and forth between kind of classically framed scope gags, but then you also have like this really grimy webcam footage that's like stretched across the scope frame that I think is like conventionally ugly, but has aged in an interesting way. I think it gives the film a cool texture, all the cross cutting. And yeah, it's a film that is just laughed off yeah, I, I'll defend it to the death. Halloween Resurrection. Well, great opening statement. <laughs> and we will definitely now start to cross-examine that. Uh, <laughs> Marsh, how about your opening remarks? What did you bring for our reappraisal? Well, this topic is all about being a heretic and going against the grain and the dogma of the time. And so I thought there was no better film to choose than a film that I, like Ryan, love unironically, and that is The Exorcist II, Heretic, from 1977, directed by John Borman. Exorcist II was a critical disaster in 1977, as well as uh, a sort of public fiasco although it did make a little cash, uh, which we'll talk about, because that sort of factors into why the movie is the way it is, which is that Warner Brothers pre-sold the film, which meant that they were in the black before the film had been made and released. So it was a profitable film, but it was a much hated film, much loathed film. I took a look, uh, it's got a 15% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, with critics, a 13% audience score of 25,000 ratings. It's been named the worst movie of all time in, in many places. Yeah, and generally, yeah, just generally despised and hated by everyone. Almost everyone, actually. A couple, couple lone voices in the wilderness throughout the years. But, of course, it is the sequel to The Exorcist, which was a smash hit a few years earlier, the William Friedkin film, and one that was very much this sort of phenomenon in the United States in terms of horror and, yeah, elevating horror into... More prestigious territory. Yeah, exactly. And so, to me, of course, one of the things that's interesting about Exorcist II Heretic is the way it rejects what The Exorcist was and was all about. It's very much a film that does not deliver on expectations of what you, uh, if you were an audience member in the 70s and you were like, I can't wait to see the sequel to The Exorcist. This is not it. 
but it's for those reasons that I love it. It is not really a horror film as much as it's an investigation film and kind of a supernatural art house kind of thing. For my money, it's one of the best looking films of the 70s. I think it's an absolute like visual and sonic tour de force. And whatever it lacks in coherence or acting or whatever people complain about, it more than makes up for in its audaciousness and its beauty and its insane cross-cutting between space and, and time. A tap dance show in an Ethiopian mountain church. Exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of beautiful collisions like that. So that's that's Exorcist Two Heretic. Yeah, we both brought sequels that are rejecting elements of their source. Yeah, it makes sense that some of the most hated movies of all time are, of course, you know, sequels, right? The two movies that people have an attachment to. And, you know, it's interesting, too, both of these films, of course, deal in these sort of, like, blanket notions of good and evil, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Both the Exorcist franchise being the sort of Catholic thing and Halloween having this, yeah, you know, boogeyman and discussions of fate and all these things that recur. And I was also thinking... Both films have sort of like technology at the center that's sort of like mediating these experiences, you know, with evil, quote unquote. But one thing before I forget, I want to point out that is one of the most important things between the connection of these movies is Exorcist 2 was the inspiration for John Carpenter to use the Panaglide in Halloween. Specifically, there's a shot in the sort of fake Africa set when you meet James Earl Jones in the movie and the camera is like flying through this city sort of like crammed street and going through these alleys all fluidly in the Panaglide. Carpenter saw that shot and had a revelation and it led to his Steadicam style. And I was thinking how interesting because the Steadicam style is a recurring, you know, stylistic sort of element of the Halloween. Yeah, Yeah. the Halloween franchise Mm -hmm. specifically, right? The POV shot, the, the cinemascope the Panaglide or the Steadicam sort of like flying around. So uh, these films do have like, yeah, like a literal connection. Uh, it's a reason I don't like Halloween 4, 5, and 6 because they're not in scope. Mm, big Ugly mistake. Movies, yeah. <laughs> Another really fun, now we're talking a little bit about these connections too, um, it's sort of a galaxy brain moment when in Resurrection early on there's a lecture uh, at like a, from a college professor and he's talking about how we all, inside all of us, there's like a dark, malevolent boogeyman, right? Like we all have this like evil within us. He quotes Jung and he says, we must face down our fears and face up to the shadow. And then in Exorcist 2, Heretic, there's that moment when at the Institute, Louise Fletcher, who plays Dr. Jean Truskin, says like to um, Reagan, like that dream is still inside you. Like this, this thing you've lost that you've repressed could still be there in you. And the idea that this 
there's a chance that this evil is still hidden somewhere inside you that you need to like learn how to access. And that's like a guiding principle for the introductions of both of those films, which I was quite surprised by that they like linked up that way with, you know, like having a scene where they sort of proclaim the the personal theme, right? Like yeah. there's something in there, there it's in you. And in, in addition to it's it's interesting that Halloween Resurrection you're talking about this like opening with with Jung, right? Because a big part of his you know, theories and writings was on like the collective unconscious, which is a, if not explicitly named, like a big factor that plays into what uh, Richard Burton and, and uh, you know, Father Marin, Max von Sydow's character, believe and, and are sort of like investigating, right? This yes. idea that we're all potentially linked psychically. And that's like a big part of, of what they're trying to, well, certainly now what Richard Burton's character Father Lamont is trying to uncover or prove or investigate, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So I guess uh, because, you know, I've kind of even phrased this week as a sort of almost like a court case for you both. I think we've had our our opening statements. So now I'd like to maybe uh, have you both address the critics, if you will. And my first question is, why do you think both of these films have such... Uh, hatred towards them. Why, if you can even theorize on it, if you have, you know, maybe critics that you want to address, you know, things they've said, or just from your own mind, like, why are these films considered to be two of the worst films ever made? Yeah, I think with Halloween Resurrection, so many criticisms to be made against it, I think, I would even say are true, but they don't detract from my own viewing experience. Every character in the film, with the exception of probably Busta Rhymes, are just like vapid. The performances are non-existent. They're all generally extremely unpleasant to be around. Mm -hmm. Um, All of the men in the film are... Sex pests. Yeah, they're all like cartoonishly perverse and like assaulting them. But also, if you were just like grabbing a bunch of people that wanted to be on reality TV in the early 2000s, like in all likelihood, that's probably how they fucking behave. (laughs) So, you know, to me, like, yeah, it's horrible to watch and it's extremely unpleasant, but I also found it to be like an accidentally extremely authentic to what that demographic would be just like dorks in the suburbs that wanted to be on reality tv and signed up on this dangertainment service they've never heard of well and the film was paid for by a notorious sex pest harvey weinstein that's it was true yeah mm-hmm. that's true so you know that's <laughs> like there, there's that right there i think a lot of critiques um are that it kind of is either dated or has this misguided look at the dot-com boom, um, just the web element they think uh, feels like silly. But I personally think it works narratively in a really fun way. I love the separate party that's going on of spectators that are just watching the event. And I think some of the most interesting things the film does is is with them. I mean, you know, w- the the reason I really love Halloween Resurrection is I think whether they were doing this on purpose or not, it seems to be making the argument that the 21st century itself is scarier than Michael Myers is, mm. you know, because so much of that series is dedicated to making him spooky or scary based off of, like, this trauma he's endured or maybe these magical powers that he's been granted by just constantly being revived. And here, I think the horror comes from the way audiences are 
initially accepting snuff entertainment as produced entertainment, that it's all arranged for their pleasure, and then they get horrified once they realize it's real, but then by the end, when they save, you know, the girl and Busta Rhymes by, like, actively texting them as they're going through the house, they're just cheering and having a good time, and they return to their party, like, well, I'm glad we took care of that, but forgetting the fact that they saw a group of teenagers be murdered, like, really brutally on their computers, and there's something about that, too, right? Like, the extremes of the early 2000s internet, when people were seeking things out, and getting shocked and getting horrified and it just meaning nothing to them. They were just uh, kind of sharing, you know, two girls, one cup, uh, the, the pain Olympics. Like <laughs> everyone was just sharing stuff and it was just like, what? And yeah, like, I did actually, I think like, you know, I was watching the film and thinking to myself, like one of the worst, you know, things in this movie is that these separate storylines never really intersect except through the technology right. where, you know, the, the final girl is being sort of texted advice on how to escape from Michael Myers. And I'm thinking, like, it's so insane that, like, it doesn't, like, the, the no one goes to save them. Right. No one goes to do anything. But then I was sitting with it and going, like, right, intentional or not. This is incredible because what these people did was just watch a bunch of people die while partying and doing nothing. Yeah. And so that becomes its own sort of like profound, profound sort of statement, yeah. which even ties into some of the consciously put their stuff where Buster Rhymes is, you know, sort of spouting the capitalist reality yeah. TV show mindset throughout yeah. the film. He's 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 he becomes a sort of like Baudrillardian hero near the end yeah. in his condemnation of America's relationship to the real. Yes. You know, I agree. And, and well, and oh god, and that's so good because he fights Michael Myers with kung fu, which is <laughs> right does. from from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, you know, another <laughs> critique that's very commonly thrown on this film is that the the Busta Rhymes sequences are embarrassing or just stupid and foolish. And this, I don't really have any eloquent explanation for, but. I think they're really funny and they don't make me cringe. Like Buster Rhymes being frustrated that he can't watch his Kung Fu because someone's knocking at his door. Like his delivery is really funny. I think it's like he's got good comedic timing in the film. And later on when he is like literally using martial arts to fight Michael Myers and says, Trick or treat, motherfucker. That's really funny because he's already (laughs) like his character has turned this whole world into a joke to begin with, he's creating a reality TV fiction of this horror. So it would make sense that when he encounters the real thing, he would still be kind of like flippant and performative and just like having a laugh with him, you know, when the stakes are quite real. Well, you know, going even back to your opening statement, then seeing as this is, I think, best viewed in the Halloween franchise as a, you know, uh, an indirect response to some of the earlier films, but a direct response to H2O, the film that you said tried to sort of reset things Mm -hmm. to to establish once again its its seriousness and its its quality. That film is is, you know, it's it's trying to to make the horrors real once again. Whereas this film is, you know, again consciously or unconsciously not sort of reveling in the sort of lack of the real the 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 fantasy of it all and not just michael myers and that but but horror movies and cinema and the media more broadly uh there's a ton of explicit 
movie references, you know, in this film to to other films, not just the Halloween films, of course. right? Yeah. And we were sort of joking around about it. You know, there's that the 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 Halloween party that the the kids go to, these two guys go to, and they, they're dressed up like. John Travolta and Samuel L. Jackson from Pulp Fiction. And we, I was like, what the fuck? Oh, this is Pulp Fiction. And then, you know, the guy's screen name, I don't know if you picked up on this, but the guy's screen oh, name yeah. is Deckard from Blade Runner. Right. Right? And and there's a bunch of other, like, movie references. Uh, my favorite part is when Tyra Banks is watching the cameraman set it up and is like, Hey, Orson Welles, pick a placement and move on. Yeah, and she makes a crack about like him and the fact that he went to film school, and then he says, Hey, hey, I went to Long Beach State. Same as Spielberg. Yeah, yeah. And then right after that, we get my favorite movie reference in the film is, and it's like a really perverse idea is, well, what if Peeping Tom was streamed live? Yeah. And that Michael Myers uses the tripod leg as a knife in the same way it's used in Peeping Tom and kills the cameraman. And it's being live streamed to Tyra Banks, who's too busy making, making coffee. Latte. Yeah. Oh, honestly, I had a shit eating grin like during that scene. And again, that like I think for most people that's a scene where it's like she's not paying attention, so it's, you know, cringe or whatever, or like it doesn't work. But I was laughing so hard because she is just making like a mocha latte and she's just fucking going off. She's listening to R&B. She's dancing around. She's like putting whipped cream on it yeah. all while the cameraman is being murdered like in this like, you know, Osterman weekend like screen setup or like command center that they have. I, I was, that's honestly my favorite part favorite part of the movie just the vigor with which because like you guys know me I love coffee and and anything sort of related and (laughs) I especially a sweet treat yeah I love a sweet treat and just like the the vigor that she was making that with uh, I thought was a a standout moment yeah she gives it her all for sure Mm -hmm. but I think you know that scene that you're describing too for for me is when I really started to sort of click with the film Mm because I was going into both of these again with the mindset that I wanted you to to I'm going to play the role of the person that's sitting there going these movies are bullshit right (laughs) Um, but in Resurrection that scene that you're talking about the scene with the coffee is when I really started to I think click with the film and engage with it and say this is being played for laughs and I think that might miss a lot of people especially again as, as I mentioned because of H2O and how mm-hmm. how H2O was trying so desperately to to be this sort of serious horror film and you know characterization and all this stuff where here we have archetypes and not even just archetypes but we have someone like Buster Rhymes that you know and I think part of the issue there is is it's Buster Rhymes you know he can't disappear right. into anything you know it's Buster fucking Rhymes so you know again for me that's when I I really kind of I think engaged with how uncanny it all was and that it was being played for laughs. It was about having a good time. Yeah. Like how could you not see a sequence like that and, 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 and feel that or think that. Mm-hmm. I also, and then the other thing that's so great about that sequence is it introduces just the gag of cutting between 35 millimeter and digital and like the webcam footage versus like what's being shot. And I find it throughout the film to be very successful. I think they could have taken it a lot farther. Oh, yeah. Especially, I think, like, a big misfire is initially when we first see the digital footage, like when they're entering the house, we get a really cool 
there's four quadrants like it's like a split screen thing Time where, code. yeah and i wish that we got to see that more often we got to see more than one on the screen at the same time i think that would have been very cool um but in general i do think it works and it's fun and it's like a clever idea but yeah i guess so i would say that those are some of my main bits of evidence in terms of responding to the way that people have sort of th- just thrown this movie out or laugh it off even to this day. Marsh, how about in the case of Exorcist 2? This one, it seems, has even more vitriol against it. I mean, this is really considered by many to be one of the worst movies ever made. And so some of the source of that vitriol is William Friedkin and William Peter Blatty, creators of The Exorcist, who have been slandering it ever since uh, its release. It's a film that was laughed at in theaters, uh, reports that people were throwing stuff at the screen. It was panned in every major newspaper, except The New Yorker, and we'll talk about that. Uh, (laughs) It was slammed by Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune. He gave it zero stars and said it was the worst major motion picture he'd seen in eight years on the job. (laughs) John Simon slandered it. Mark Kermode has slandered it. Uh, I mean, everyone, with, again, the exception, like I mentioned, uh, and this is the rare occasion where I'm in sync with Pauline Kael, but she did have an eloquent defense of it in The New Yorker at the time. And otherwise, this film's other champion is Martin Scorsese, Mm -hmm. who, well, for obvious reasons, I think, uh, is on this film's wavelength as a a Catholic and as a cinephile, right? It does not surprise me that Kael really likes it yeah she likes flamboyant cinema and that's certainly what this is yeah and she calls it camp and likes it you know whereas most people call it camp and hate it and i think kale also sometimes revels in her own uh role as a as a sort of cinematic heretic absolutely that was her whole thing you know um so i guess you know it is a similar case i think it's like part of uh, the, the American public's longstanding uh, battle with unreality in cinema and specifically in relation to what Friedkin is doing in The Exorcist, which in a very Friedkin way is realistic and gritty and uh, raw. And Borman is more ethereal, more mythical, more supernatural. And it is, you know, it's a classic case of category error. It's, you know, I think people had a lot of expectations and it's just not what Borman delivered. And in fact, Borman had turned down directing The Exorcist, opting instead to direct Zardoz. Because, of course, after Deliverance, he was one of the hottest directors in Hollywood, and he made Zardoz instead. And he specifically said that he passed on The Exorcist because he found it repulsive. He thought it was nothing more than just abusing a child for two hours. And he had daughters, and he was just like, yuck, this grosses me out. And so when he was approached to do Exorcist 2, he was attracted to the idea that he could just basically do whatever he wanted because 
it was already making a profit. And he basically said the studio really didn't interfere. There was a lot of problems with the production. However, specifically, uh, Borman got sick for a month and his writing partner like ghost directed uh, a portion of the film. Uh, and there were also problems with the studio in terms of location. Borman wanted to, of course, shoot the film on location in Ethiopia, but he was denied. And it made me think of when Cronenberg similarly was denied uh, shooting in Tangiers for Naked Lunch because the result, like in both films, is Hollywood's version of an imaginary Africa being shot on backlots, and it's crazy. So ultimately, like, most of the film was shot in L.A. and Arizona, and again, the result just makes it even more unreal, right? Mm -hmm. And the fact that, like, Borman is starting from a place of, like, oh, I hate it, fuck the, I hate the exorcist. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna just do my own thing with, like, good and evil, right? And that's what he did. It's an extremely, I guess, yeah, sort of... Heretical uh, undertaking. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it is, it is. In fact, you know, Vincent Canby, to, to name another heretic, uh, <laughs> in the New York Times basically levied that complaint. He said... How dare this film, like, disrespect The Exorcist by refuting it, right? Because it basically does just say, like, remember all that shit that happened? Yeah, it's important, but, like, it really doesn't matter. Because what matters is here and now, because the demon is still inside of her. Satan is still everywhere, right? Right. So, yeah, and, and otherwise, I think, you know, people complain about Linda Blair's acting, Richard Burton's acting. I think they're fine, you know? And I, I mean, I do think, uh, yeah, I, I get it, you know? Like, Kyle and I laughed in a few in a few spots. Yeah. There's a couple, like, good Richard Burton bits in there. But those just like, make the film better. Just yeah. the way that he, like, huffs the oxygen after that one scene. Oh, yeah. uh, or takes, like, a drink, like, in, like, in, in Africa when he's, like... <laughs> I love when both uh, Richard Burton and Louise Fletcher, like, return their oxygen tanks and say thank you as if they were saying thank you to a waiter. Yeah. <laughs> like, thank you. <laughs> my, I think my two favorite, like, Burton moments in the film uh, that are just so... Because I'm a a huge Richard Burton fan and I it goes back it goes deep for me my my father always used to say that when I got very angry and upset that I reminded him of of Richard Burton <laughs> you know and he would do this impression of me like I'd be so mad you know when you're like mad at someone and then they just start laughing at you and how it pisses you off yeah. even worse and I would just get more and more mad my dad would be like you sound like Richard Burton no no never you know like and I would just it would infuriate me even more but my two on that note, my two favorite Burton moments are like when he reaches that Burton fever pitch. And it's there's one very early on when uh, he's been approached by this cardinal who's telling him to go investigate, you know, Father Marin's, uh, you know, what happened to Father Marin in the first film to investigate. And Burton replies to him like... I'm not worthy. Like, <laughs> it's like, wow. Like, he just immediately goes to like 10. Like, so there's that one. And then later when he's, you know, he and Reagan are going back to the house in Washington, D.C. near the end of the film. Oh, yeah. And he's in this weird, like, trance-like yeah, state. Yeah, Pazuzu's like, put him in a, put him in a trance. Yeah, so he's like, sort of possessed by this demon or whatever, and he's going back to the house. And it's an amazing sequence in general for me because it's like, it's presented in the film as this sort of race against time, but they're taking public transportation. 
They're like waiting for a train. They're like waiting for a fucking bus. It's like the slowest. And then Louise Fletcher, who who's trying to chase him, like gets into a cab that's just like putzing around very slowly. It was just like hilarious. Well, it's a cab that runs into a wreck, and then people are like looking for a doctor, and she's like, "Uh, yeah, I am a doctor," and so she just like. Yeah. In this moment of of you're supposed to be building towards the climax, yeah, and and it's I guess you're you know just it's those moments where I think that loses people right because it doesn't really function like it should. Yeah, but Burton when he's on the bus uh, in that sequence, he's on the bus and like the the or the train and the ticket takers coming around and Reagan's like we don't have tickets. We need tickets or whatever. And then she like, he's in such a, like a trance that he's just like, just sitting there and she reaches into his pocket to like get his wallet out, you know, and be like, I'll, I'll buy us some tickets or whatever. And the ticket taker's like, Hey, what are you doing? Going in this drunk guy's wallet or whatever, you know, he's just sitting there. She's like, Oh, I'm with him. We're together. And then he like looks at the train guy and he goes, she belongs to me. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, okay. And she pays the ticket. <laughs> and it's like nothing alarming in that exchange at all. Like, I love, I was just cracking up. Yeah, yeah. no, I think he's really good in it. I do think Linda Blair is, like, pathetically bad in it. Uh, but it doesn't detract from the film. Like, yeah, I don't know if we need to, like, make this clear, but I also think Exorcist 2 Heretic is, like, a very good movie. Hey! Um, like, no need to, like, have that be, like, a hovering over us. I, I, I mean, I'm still... Please make the case and continue to provide the evidence, but I do think it's quite good. And I think it's really, it's worth pointing out, you had talked about how it's one of the most, just one of the best looking films from the 70s. And I think it's worth hitting on that even more by mentioning that it's not that it just looks cool, it's extremely elegant and sophisticated and arranged and designed. Um, It's a stunning thing to look at. And, and it moves really well through all of these spaces. It, it does feel like it was um, a, a, like a very fruitful relationship between the cinematographer and the production designer, mm-hmm. that they were both like bouncing off of each other and creating this world. Well, and I would add, you know, as you mentioned, Marsh, you know, the fact that it was sort of consigned to like backlot, you know, location status, uh, that a lot of that artificiality, like adds to its sort of otherworldly, like unsettling kind of visual quality. Like, and think about how that's directly refuting Friedkin's The Exorcist. And think about how down to earth all the Washington sequences are. It's fall, it's beautiful, it's, you know, there's people walking around, they actually look cold, like there's, you know, weather is real, it's gritty, it's it's got that 70, early 70s gritty look to it. And then this film, yeah, completely unreal spaces it's all very urban you know there are all these skyscrapers there's mirrors everywhere there's there's glass everywhere the whole film is yeah. filled with glass that that like psychological institute that they're at is is one of the most impressive like locations i've ever yeah. seen it's like a fassbinder set like it world is. on a yes. wire in the amount of just like depth and glass and and sort it's of it's all these just like, like hexagonal pods that everyone's yeah. in you know i feel like if i was a patient there i'd be really confused getting around <laughs> you know i'd keep running into walls or false doors <laughs> yeah <laughs> it feels not, like a maze it's not a very calming space you know yeah i didn't think so <laughs> it's a very unsettling space yeah or another really weird space in that film is the the rooftop that like Linda Blair has her like apartment at, and it's really strange because the rooftop, the the railing is like interrupted. It's like 
you could very easily just walk off of the roof and fall to your death. And they, I mean, they flirt with that danger throughout the film. Well, but from, I wonder, like, why would that ever be designed that way? From what I understand, too, when I was reading more about the film, like, they did that stunt with Linda Blair, like, teetering on the edge, and they didn't use a stunt double. Like, that was her. Like, but were they like below? No, no. Like, what do you mean? She didn't have a rope or no. anything. No. That's insane. <laughs> and interestingly enough, I wouldn't have done it if I was. A, I would have been too freaked out. I don't think I. Could I mean, imagine what Linda Blair already went through by the time she got to this film. Yeah, after that's a couple true. months with Friedkin, this is nothing. Yeah, that's Borman's a, good point. a polite Englishman, you know. I know, but man. Oh. Now, interestingly, that building where they shot that stuff was the then Warner Brothers offices, which were at 666 Fifth Avenue. Holy fuck, right? (laughs) Now, another, yeah, one other thing I want to mention that I think one of the reasons why I I would guess people don't like this movie, and again, it, it has to do with that unreality, which is even plot wise. Whereas in The Exorcist, you have like a physical confrontation between a priest and a demon. All of the quote unquote action in this film is relegated to like this dream world that is shared with the characters as they're using this like synchronous machine that like puts their brains together in this like ethereal space matches their brain wavelengths or whatever yeah it's really it's really crazy but it 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 is literally like a machine that allows john borman the director to do anything he wants and go anywhere he wants and do flashbacks and and all this like other like helicopter cinematography and dissolves and like anyway uh it's awesome but it really is yeah this sort of it's all at a remove you know like people are in peril but it's like in the spiritual realm they're in peril right Mm -hmm. yeah but of course it does cross over and those worlds do affect yes, each other of course you know there's that we've we're talking about it that great sequence where they put on like a tap dance show at the psychiatric institute that's sort of like the titty cut follies dance um yeah. from the wiseman film and it's cross cut with richard burton in the deserts of africa being stoned by a bunch of people and then whenever he gets like a rock to his head Linda Blair starts like spazzing out on stage um, and they keep performing as she's like seizing up and like being pelted by spiritual rocks. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, talk about unreality, right? They're in these like crazy, like glitzy, glamorous outfit as they're yeah, dancing. Yeah, it, like, it looks like all that jazz. It really does. Like, yeah. It, looks like, it looks like a Fosse number and the lighting is all like red and pink and it's like crazy cosmic intercutting and if look i'm i'm an editor so i'm like a sucker for any time a director is cutting across like time time and space and like i mean it's just yeah and (laughs) it rules it's pure filming you know and i think to to that extent you've already sort of brought that up marsh it's like you know for audiences in 1977 who had experienced the exorcist and who were so you know on that wavelength right uh no pun intended uh (laughs) you know going into something like this which is is so like it requires more of you as an audience than the exorcist does like it requires you to think about who these people are to not just think about who these people are but to think about the things that they're saying and their ideas you know where the exorcist is really just a sort of an assault 
on the audience, right? And as you said, in very sort of material ways. And, you know, not just that, but going and hearing about the production of The Exorcist and knowing about the production of The Exorcist, the ways that Friedkin, like, was physically torturing the actors who were involved in that, you know, people who were getting hurt or people who were getting insulted by him, you know? I mean, it was just, it was a really, like, vicious film to, yeah, to be made and, Ellen and for people had to like, watch. Yeah, spinal damage from getting tossed around that, that wardrobe yeah. and everything. You, and no surprise, she wanted nothing to do with part two, even though Friedkin <laughs> wasn't involved. She's like, I don't want to touch any of that exorcist shit. And that's a really interesting point. Again, another, another I think, sort of interesting connection between the two films, as you mentioned earlier, Marsh, I think before we even start recording, what is very interesting are the you know in both of these films the relationship that they have with the quote stars of their previous films right i think in both cases you have a very interesting sort of relationship with the stars in the films and as you pointed out the people who decided to come back for exorcist 2 and the people who decided that they wanted nothing to do with it i think also says a lot about their experiences and you know, what we sort of see in these films. Yeah, because I think the original plan, even from the crude producer's perspective for Exorcist 2, was to reuse unused footage from the original as part of the film. And it was like supposed to be a $3 million cheapie. By the time Borman got through with it, it was the most expensive film Warner Brothers had ever made. It had a $13.7 million budget. Oh my God. It started with a $9 million budget, but because they uh, had to build everything, mm-hmm. it went to roughly $14 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's like, it's not even just the actors who didn't want to show up for the sequel, it was all the locations which they were denied, yes, right? They were denied access to the house. And that's another element. They go back to DC in this film m- multiple times and they go back to the house and they shoot the steps, but it's a recreation of the real one. And that just adds an, again, another level of unreality mm-hmm. or uncanny to this movie. Cause we get, Linda Blair back, uh, which is, uh, again, sort of interesting. And I, I think it would be impossible to make this film if you didn't have Linda Blair yes. back because she's sort of central to the whole thing. But again, hearing the stories of what she went through the first time, you know, it's it's somewhat surprising that she would come back after so many said, yeah, I want absolutely fucking nothing to do with it. But I did read that one of her rules in coming back was no demon makeup. Mm-hmm. So that, again, you're talking about this other, you know, these things that were recreated. Uh, I read that all the the sequences where we see like a demonic possessed Reagan are either, you know, a, a bit that they were able to grab from the first film, but they also just had a double cast for Reagan who would wear the makeup. Because I noticed when I was like watching the scene where, you know, they're, it's early on when they first get sort of synced up and they have the demon reaching out to Father Marin, played once again by Max von Sydow, he's which back. is very, again, of the people who said yeah. they would and wouldn't come back, he comes back and he's basically in like just... Dream space. Yeah, glorified cameos, you know, but he's back. And and the demon in this in this sequence where they're inside you know each other's minds is like reaching out to him, and I was like, this feels so weird because it's not Linda Blair; it's some other double 
who's in all the makeup, you know? So again, that sort of uncanny kind of distancing yeah. that you feel throughout, you know? Another when, incredible sequence of, you know, the dream world invading the real world, just the fact that Reagan reaching out and she's like sort of superimposed and transparent over the screen. So it's Max von Sydow on the right and the, or on the left and then Reagan's on the right and in between is um, Louise Fletcher and then Linda Blair she's like trying to calm her down between this like crazy you know therapy light game thing that we should actually probably explain how that works too but but, but briefly as I'm describing the shot so you have the picture in your head the transparent Reagan is like f- fondling squeezing Louis, her she's like squeezing Louise Fletcher's heart she's like d- dingling her fingers around it and it's like squishy and gross and you think she might be able to crush it or take it out with her But yeah, eventually they they, they, they they nuke it, you know, they calm all that down. So I guess I should also say another thing that I didn't mention about H2O and then how it relates to the star that does come back, Jamie Lee Curtis, is that H2O was supposed to be the end. And that's another reason this film is called Resurrection. H2O was supposed to be the film where Michael was, like, killed and there was no doubt about it. it and was, that was... It, Correct me if I'm wrong, part of Jamie Lee Curtis's stipulation, right? Isn't that what she said? She's like, kill him. It's over, right? Mm-hmm. But that Mustafa Akkad That's right. has it in his like Halloween whatever contract that goes back to wherever. He can't be killed. Michael Myers can never be killed in a movie. <laughs> so he was like, uh-uh. So that they they basically they they hid it from Jamie Lee Curtis or whatever that they were like okay well we'll end it in a way where it looks like he's totally dead, but then right after they wrapped production of H two O they filmed the sequence that opens Resurrection. It should be brought up that at the end of H two O when Jamie Lee Curtis kills Michael Myers by decapitating him, there's also like this pathetic touching moment where Michael Myers is like you know, on death's door and in pain. And he like reaches out for Jamie Lee Curtis, like as a brother, like this moment that's supposed to fucking mean anything. That's another thing that I think is like this like stupid failure of H2O. It's like, why would I ever be emotionally moved by Michael Myers, like reaching out to his sister for some sort of embrace before she kills him? It's just, to me, it's completely fraudulent and just pathetic. So Resurrection then does a reversal with that by revealing that that was just a man 
who was dressed up as Michael Myers, begging for help, but because his larynx was smashed, he couldn't make any noise. Yeah, some paramedic. Exactly, and so she decapitated the wrong man and has since been institutionalized because she hasn't been able to deal with the trauma of, like, killing an innocent. Yeah, Um, some dude's fucking head off. So, yeah, that's why the opening sequence is really funny with that, you know, here's the star returned, she's clearly tired, she's fed up, she wants this little screen time as possible like whatever's contractually obligated and she does look absolutely pissed off to be there in resurrection jamie lee curtis looks like the contempt that she has for this movie and being here again it is unavoidable like she is so fucking and it adds so much to the performance because you know laurie stroud's been through so much (laughs) and so like yeah and it's still going through yeah it works in that moment because it's like not even a clever way of presenting this this death for her because what she does is she like leaves her coat on the roof near a rope on the ground and is just hoping that Michael is going to stand in that exact spot with his foot on the rope <laughs> yeah. and it works. I mean, the film is like, we just need to get this done. So she's got, you know, a button and she presses it and then the rope tugs Michael Myers and he gets, he's hanging upside down. And when she is about to kill him by like having him fall to his death, she naturally, because she's traumatized by killing a paramedic decides, well, I need to just make sure. So she goes to take his mask off that's when Michael then kills her and she falls off the roof. And they smooch. And they smooch, yes. that's right. Yeah. Another little odd moment. Yeah, a little kiss. Yeah. But it's more perverse and interesting than like him like reaching out for, to like shake hands. Yeah, well, she kisses him right, and then right. falls to her death. I'll see you in hell. Funny enough, another just interesting comparison between the films. Both have a very unreal fall like a person so she falls into the trees and it's it kind of even reminds me of um the fall in die hard when alan rickman falls it's this weird like slow motion windy and she just kind of like flows through the trees and there's all this weird cgi and she kind of like lightly hits the ground and dies um and then exorcist 2 has that great bit where the man and also a rag doll kind of falls at a really unusual speed through a slot canyon because they have to climb up uh, just like with their hands and their backs pushed up against the rock that sidle their way up, you know, into the uh, like the lair they're headed to. But yeah, they they both like fall in a very unreal way. Yeah, I I think uh, Halloween, you know, this really highlighted for me just like how fucking confusing that the whole legacy of this series has become from all the different people who've been involved and what's canon, what isn't, what's been rejected, what's been reset, right? Because even the new David Gordon Green one takes place after the first one. I think it discounts Halloween 2 even. Because that point that you're bringing up that's still sort of in this is, you know, this is from like the Halloween 2 timeline where it's established that she's Michael's brother, but that was never in, or she's Michael's sister, uh, that was never in the first one. No. And and then they they start down that track and this kind of continues that. But this also tries to H2O in this try to reject, as you said, four, five, and six, and say, well, now it's just one, two, and then seven and eight, 
That's all that counts, you know? Right. And then, you know, there's the fucking Rob Zombie remake, which then is totally discarded once again. Yeah, so it is like a confusing web. One of the things I really like about Resurrection as well, and this might be more of a leap in terms of my argument here, but I think if you look at all of the sequels, that Resurrection is the only film or at least it's the film that most closely resembles the nature of evil that's present in Halloween 1. Because once they get rid of Jamie Lee Curtis, it's just Michael's just killing to kill. Like, he doesn't know any of these people. He has no attachment. You could make the argument that he's just pissed off that they're in his house because... Well, I was going to say, this is like the one where he's justified because in reality, yeah, this is a reality television home invasion. And Mm -hmm. he's just been living quietly in the underneath layer of the house and now rats yeah eating rats he's you know (laughs) he could be eating humans very easily but no he's just chilling until dangertainment rolls in uh and And starts up his house and actively mocking him yeah by like making a a, a a charade of his life yeah you know i did love the scene that's you know, again, we're almost talking about like, you know, we were talking about Marx Brothers earlier, right? That's almost like the Marx Brother mirror gag uh, from, I think, Duck Soup, yeah. where Buster Rhymes, who's now wearing the Michael Myers costume, you know, as part of this, like, the, the you know, fake scares of the TV show. He's going to show up as a fake Michael Myers and scare everybody. But then he's being followed by the real Michael Myers. And they, like, turn and look at each other. And they're both like standing there in the mask and like looking at each other. Oh shit, man! Charlie, where the fuck you been at, man? Don't you know we've been looking all over this motherfucker for you? And why the hell you dressed like me anyway? I ain't telling you to be Michael Myers. I'm playing Michael Myers. If them kids come around and see us dressed up in the same shit, you're gonna ruin the whole effect. Ah, damn it! The hell is wrong with you? And Michael Myers is just standing there staring at him silently. And I laughed. I loved that bit so much because I was also thinking, you know, Michael Myers is this just, you know, and and my favorite description just again goes back to the first film that Dr. Loomis, you know, Donald Pleasant says, like, there's no point in trying to analyze mentally, psychologically what's wrong with him. There's nothing there. It's just pure evil, right? Isn't that essentially what he says? Yeah, he's the shape. That's the idea. Yeah. And that is just like, it's just, or as Buster Rhymes says in this, Michael Myers is a killer shark in baggy overalls, right? <laughs> like, that it's just like, what's going on in his head? Like, maybe nothing. Who knows what? But when he's sitting there looking at himself, right, in quotation marks, and Buster Rhymes is, like, yelling at him, and he's looking at the mask, and he's seeing everything, and he, like, doesn't kill him. He, like, listens to him. He, like, he leaves. He, like, backs up. And I was thinking, like, I was trying to think what is going on in Michael Myers fucked up brain in that moment, you know, of like looking at this guy dressed up like him and that he doesn't kill him. He like spares him in that moment. Mm-hmm. You know, he just kind of like backs off and leaves. I was like laughing. I was like, yeah, it's That's amazing. Great. It, like, it's sort of like his reality is shaken momentarily. You know, he just doesn't know what to make to uh, make of it. So he kind of malfunctions. Exactly. And I, I do think that the reveal of the two Michaels in that shot is also 
kind of reminiscent of the way Carpenter's camera moved in Halloween 1. Like the way things would get revealed on the edge of the frame or through a camera movement. The shot when you're following Buster Rhymes' Michael Myers and the camera pans over and all of a sudden there's a second one behind him. It's a really good shot. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. I was I was impressed. Like, and then, it's and then it really, cuts yeah. to the like surveillance webcam where you see both of them walking across the room. Um, uh, I think both of our films this week have a little Buñuelian kind of absurdity to them, you know? I agree. Uh, and that's kind of what I thought of in that moment. I'm just like, yeah, now the, here's this this killer who's become a Halloween costume, and now there's, like, doppelgangers, and is very funny. Yeah, because yeah. he also has the bit earlier at the mental institution with the guy that's dressed up as John Wayne Gacy, right? There's like that crazy guy in He's there. like the lovable inmate at the facility that the guards are like, oh, he got out again. But and yeah, he's, he's like a, obsessed with serial killers. Yes, yeah. and he's dressed up, he says, as John Wayne Gacy. He's wearing the clown mask and like he's reciting off all of Gacy's statistics or whatever to some prison guard there or something like that. But then, you know, after Michael kills a bunch of people in the in the mental hospital and then like the thing with Lori happens on the roof and she dies and then he's leaving, he comes to that guy's cell and he like sees the guy and and that guy's really excited because he's like, fucking Michael Myers. And they have this weird exchange where the same thing, Michael Myers is just like looking at him and then just like hands him the knife and leaves, you know? Yeah, and that guy's like rattling off the stats, you know, like, Three killed Halloween night, 19, you know, yeah. just mm-hmm. going through the greatest hits. Well, yeah, he's like announcing the films that are canon because he doesn't <laughs> yes. describe the deaths from the 80s. <laughs> yes. That also struck me that, again, yeah. it was like, here's the canon. Yeah, right? like just to remind everyone who has seen all of these, this is how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But another like really good like moment. Yeah, you know? and then it's great because then it, like, it kind of introduces that industrial aesthetic too where Michael's like walking down the hallway with all the like bulb lights and the scores coming in and it's kind of like a hip hop version of the theme. Mm-hmm. And that's actually something a lot of people I also read really uh, criticized was like all the hip hop in uh-huh. the film. Like the usage of like hip hop music. Yeah. You know, but that this film also resurrected the score, the original Carpenter score. Because if I'm not mistaken, there have been previous films where it was like really toned down or they didn't really like play it very much, but that like it was very central again, the, the, you know, the classic Halloween theme in this film. Yeah, the other ones were like weird remixes or riffs on it, you know, it always sounded off. And then, yeah, this is the one where it like really comes back in full force. But people didn't like all the hip hop. Yeah, see, I think it's just good period texture. I I think it just gives off millennium vibes and it works. I think as a time capsule. um, That and the hilarious PDAs that everyone's using, like to communicate. Yeah. (laughs) Again, yeah, like everyone kind of laughs off the dated tech, but I don't see a problem with the tech being dated if that was just how it worked then. Like, I don't just, I just don't understand what the issue is. Like, I mean, maybe it's this kind of speculative um, idea of the what reality TV would turn into because like that ended up not really being a thing like choosing amongst various web cameras attached to performers you know but it's a fun idea and I like that it's not like a major network that's putting it together it's just Busta Rhymes with his homegrown dangertainment yeah I mean obviously this is like B- Blair Witch exploitation right yes you know not that there's anything wrong with that right you're right though I mean because it comes from that time 
when after the Blair Witch Project comes out, you know, all the studios then are scrambling, like, how can we, how can we get some of that action? And I feel like this movie is, you know, among many films of that time that were trying to, in their own ways, interject that, like, immediacy of of digital video you know and how it feels in your in your movies in some cases it it works horribly but i think you're right for me it actually does work very well in the confines of what this film is trying to do like it it's it's definitely like tacked on but it's tacked on in a way that like communicates with the film like and at some points like i agree with you for me enhances it visually and also Again, as you mentioned, like in, in ways that this film is also commenting on things like, you know, the, the coming relationship we're all going to have with by now in 2021, tw- almost 20 years after this film comes out with with social media and the Internet and online relationships. Yeah, the as- fact that two characters who've never met in person are friends online and they're both roasted for it constantly in like separate strands of the film. Again, it's like, what do you mean you're talking to just so- some person? You know, like mm-hmm. as if that isn't right, you know, the and, daily life now. Yes, right? and, and the way that this film is also sort of addressing like, you know, the arrival of new media and the effects that new media is going to have on all of us as a society. And the one thing that really struck my mind was like our willingness and not even just our willingness, but by now almost our compulsion to be surveilled, right? To be seen and to be watched. And in many respects to be watched by people we don't even know. Right. And that's like a huge part of what is driving these people and yeah we talked about it a little bit with buster rhymes with him talking about you know reality and fame and what people are looking for like when our protagonist she says i don't want to be famous and buster rhymes says like being famous that's the american dream like what do you mean you don't want to be famous but everyone else yeah it's like looking to get a piece of the action they want to become celebrities with their participation uh in the house and it, yeah, I just in general with the webcam stuff, to me, it's very clearly an experiment. And I think it succeeds, but I mainly think it succeeds because of that spirit of experimentation. Like they were trying something new. I watched a really funny special feature on the Blu-ray where it interviews some of the cast members and, you know, Rick Rosenthal, the director. And I had sent the one to you guys where he says, like, by mixing digital and film, we're creating maybe a new medium. And I like that this guy had that ambition for something like this. Like, I think that's really charming. And then uh, some of the cast members, which is just the the collision here is so funny to me. Like, the, the really perverse and gross character who is, like, always trying to get the woman to take their shirts off or his, like... His webcam is always looking at their butts. In a little aside interview, he mentions like, he's like, I've never had such creative freedom as an actor and being able to like actively bring my own art by having a camera strapped to my head. He's like, I feel like I am a creator in this film. And here's this guy playing just the grossest character. And even he was taking it that seriously. He's like, there's so much that we as actors can now bring to the visual quality of the film. That's amazing. Yeah, another really nice thing about the Blu-ray that's worth pointing out is it has a feature called the webcam special, and it's a 40-minute film of just the webcam footage. Wow. And it's, like, all cut in order 
So you could watch a 40-minute version of the film that's just the webcams. That's awesome. Yeah. Should have watched that. Yeah. Yeah, what the fuck, you know? It's pretty cool. It, it's weird, though, because I realized one of the things I like about the webcam footage is how it gets converted to scope and looks totally nuts. So this is just the, like, four, three webcams, and it doesn't look as good as it does when it was printed on film and blown up, like, stretched across the, the scope frame. But yeah, it is a very fun experience because you, you just get a lot more of, of naturally, because it's just that. Um, but you get to see them, like, goofing around. A lot more. Yeah, you know, both of these films, uh, in in watching them, like, and I watched them back to back. Like, I I just I stacked them up and watched them back to back. Uh-huh. And I I think again, I really appreciated in both these films, like how at times almost like experimental some of the visual language got. You know, it got in the case of you know as we've discussed with with Resurrection, this this you know Rosenthal's, you know prophecy for a new medium or whatever, you know, but, but also in, you know, heretic, I I think, you know, the amount of like superimpositions that are going on, you know, the, the, just at at times like these, these, like you said, this like dream world language that he's trying to impart visually was, was so impressive. And I would think like for me, more impressive visually than the first film, I have to admit I am not a huge exorcist stan. Like, I've I've never really held what so many people, you know, the people who, according to Friedkin, like rioted in the in the the, the test screening for for this film. You know, I, I I guess I never really held that sort of relationship with the first one. So for me, I, I don't see this as a very heretical experience, you know, and I, I think that it's playing with ideas that are a lot more interesting visually but also just like thematically like i'm i'm with borman on that you know because to me like what this film is trying to go for yeah it it, it, for people who just wanted that more of linda blair like masturbating with a crucifix and swearing a lot like this film is trying to do something i think much more admirable you know uh i guess i'd use that word you know than than just the pure shock value of the first, you know, it's like in that Hitchcockian thing, like Hitchcock, you know, saying like shock is cheap. Suspense is something that can stay with you. And to me, Exorcist 2 is a more haunting film, especially on an emotional and psychological level than the first one. The first one is just like pea soup and a lot of like cuss words, you know, <laughs> and I'm not trying to detract like Exorcist is a great film, you know, but I don't think I've ever had it, you know, in this sort of like reverential place that so many people seem to to do. So for me in watching this, and I'll even say Exorcist 3, you know, which I, I really like as well. Like too, I, yeah. I've never felt that they were these these travesties, you know. And of, of course Exorcist 3 was blatty being involved again but and also like a compromised work too because there's like different cuts and things got taken out of his hands right and and like you've already alluded to it marsh but this film had a very troubled production as well with a lot of second guessing some would say or changes being made on the fly right something like yeah the script was yeah rewritten multiple times and again there was like you know all kind of logistical problems but it's also yeah it's interesting sitting here now right because we we hear a lot these days 
people complaining about sequels and franchises, right? And here we get like one of the rare examples when film in film history when a director takes a beloved work and says, "That's fine. I'm just going to do it totally different." And people can't handle it. And I also think, you know, Borman himself attributes it to even the message. And whether, you know, this is the mid-70s, right? And Borman said, I made a film about goodness. Mm -hmm. And that was not popular. Yeah. Right? Because his vision was the, you know, not the doom and gloom of The Exorcist, but this, again, this sort of like cosmic you know, battle between good and evil and good wins out at least temporarily. And the, you know, the fight continues or whatever, but uh, yeah, extremely un unfashionable, earnest kind of approach uh, to what people thought was a horror franchise. Thinking of it in those terms too, we, we brought this up earlier in one of our previous episodes where, you know, we talked about, you know, in the Deleuzian sense, viewing the detective figure as like a monk or a religious, you know, fanatic, a, a believer, a priest, you know, who's who's trying to affirm what they believe. Like, I mean, that's again, like what this film is about. Like you said, yeah. it's an investigation. And I almost see like Borman in that role, you know, that as he began this, it was an investigation of something for him. And it was his willingness to to allow himself to discover things while he was making this film. Because, you know, they talked about all the rewrites. And, and I think even like Linda Blair was complaining at one point and being like, well, this was nothing like the original script, you know, like it just kept changing. Like uh, in production, they were they were rewriting and changing things. And I think that like I, I sort of feel that journey that this film begins as one thing, you know, it's sort of set up as something, even in its, like you said, the way it was pre-sold, you know, that people were buying it just because Exorcist 2, we know what the hell we're getting here. Yeah, and they didn't. And they didn't, you know, and that the journey that, you know, Richard Burton, Father Lamont, his character goes on, I almost see it as sort of like John Borman's journey in the making of this film, you know, of him sort of, having this weight on him of being told what the exorcist is in the way that, you know, the Cardinal and the, and the church are, are trying to explain like, no, this is our line. This is what Satan is, or this is what evil is, you know, and him saying, I think it's different, you know, and then going on that investigation, that journey and finding it and finding an affirmation of what he believes. But also the idea that at the ending for father Lamont, he's, excommunicated for that, yeah. you know? He's, He's out of the church, yeah. right? In the same way that Borman in making this film was, and the film itself was was excommunicated by the cinematic community, right? Absolutely. And Borman didn't make another film for five, four or five years uh, until he made Excalibur, which is now a beloved uh, sort of cult classic. But I do think it's interesting, again, thinking, thinking about this film on those terms, Andy, because Scorsese, of course, compared it to Europa 51 and Mean Streets in terms <laughs> of... 
he sort of he compared Reagan's like goodness in the biblical sense to uh, Ingrid Bergman and Charlie in Mean Streets. And that's how Scorsese sees it. Right. He sees it as like the book of Job. He sees it as a biblical tale. And I think, you know, Borman, this is a guy who wanted to make the Lord of the Rings. You Mm -hmm. know, he's willing to get lost in the myth and the muck, right? I mean, he brings in the Mesopotamian demon Pazuzu to be, you know, the, a central figure in the film who has uh, a voice and a cosmic presence. And I am Pazuzu. Pazuzu. Call me by my dream name. Call me. Pazuzu. And music composed by Ennio Morricone at oh. perhaps his most avant-garde. Yeah, the score in this is is bonkers. Deranged. Like, it is amazing. It's really good. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I get, but and that's the thing again. It's like, you know, I'm here to defend this film. I think I've done an okay job, but so much of what makes this film great is the indescribable cinema of it all. Yep. The way it sounds and looks and cuts and feels and just Morricone and Borman, like really in some of these dream sequences and some of the synchronous sequences, just really showing you this just cosmic apocalyptic vision of of good and evil like pitched in this you know earthly battle or whatever and it's again it's you just have to experience it like i'm not i can't explain to you how morricone is using strings and his (laughs) voices in this movie you just have to fucking hear it you know too (laughs) continuing on this idea you know again of like this this journey and this journey of like discovery and and sort of being like a tortured believer i also like (laughs) it strikes me that i read that richard burton when he began the role when he when he first showed up was very sober but apparently linda blair like sort of spilled the beans because they, I discovered had a very close relationship on the set that it was sort of like a father daughter relationship that Linda Blair, like idolized Richard Burton as of course this, you know, great and legendary actor yeah. and who wouldn't. Um, but that he started drinking more and more as the film went on and the production sort of had its troubles. And so it was just absolutely hammered by the end. And I think she even sort of said, you know, he was using cue cards at a certain point. She tried to defend it, though, by saying, well, you know, they were changing the script so much, you know, that, like, (laughs) cue cards were helpful, but also, like, he's just fucking so drunk that he's got to use these cue cards. There's one shot in particular, you know, the the shot where the sun is, like, behind him, and he's, like, rocking back and forth when he's, like, in Africa, and he's, like, been excommunicated and lost faith. I mean, it's basically his lowest moment, and that's one of those moments when you go, like, this guy can barely stand up because he's he's had too many drinks. Yes. But it works as Father Lamont. I mean, ever the professional, it totally works, like, for me anyway. Yes, that's, that's exactly it. You know, yeah. Just seeing him like thinking he's got a bottle and a half gin in him, you know, <laughs> like yeah, classic Burton. She belongs to me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, just like talking about both of these, it's. I mean, I think what draws you to Exorcist Heretic is pretty similar to what draws me to Resurrection, 
is just that, and maybe what people find so unappealing about both of these movies is whether they're explicitly at war with their source or just at the very least personal visions, something that feels different. I mean, I I became like a, you know, Halloween Resurrection stan when Molly and I were going through the series like two years ago and we were just like watching all of them and I hadn't watched at least everything after two since I was, you know, probably like in middle school or something. So we were revisiting them and it became a slog because they, you get really like worn down in the middle of them. And then Resurrection arrived and I was just like, what is this? Like, this one's different. Like, this one is not like the other ones. Like, something has changed. And it has, like, ideas, and maybe they don't work, but, like, it's it's doing something. And, I mean, again, like, that's so much of what Heretic does so well is it's rejecting the austere quality of the original film and coming up with its own visual language that is very much the personal vision of John Borman. And it... Anytime I was lost in particular, you know, subtleties of the plot, um, whatever they may be, like it was never an issue. Like it was never because the vision was so cohesive throughout the whole film and the act of watching it, I think is so delightful if you can surrender yourself over to it. Yeah. Well, look, I think people get needlessly complicated when they think about films and it's like, what happened in the plot? This and that. This is, in particular, a film that is straight up like, this is about good and evil. And then you just watch it. Like, how fucking hard is that to grasp? Like, he's just investigating. He's going around. You got fucking Pazuzu. You got Father Lamont. You got Reagan. There you go. Kakumo. And Kakumo, who yeah. we need to talk about. Yeah, so, played by the great James Earl Jones. Yeah, and that's uh, and that's one of the yeah the big parts of the film is that in Father Lamont's investigation, and he is right. Correct me if I'm wrong. He's specifically investigating whether or not Father Marin from the original was a heretic, right? And that he started to like sympathize with yes. the devil because. Oh boy, <laughs> callback. Uh, yes, because the church is essentially trying to do a hit job on Father Marin. Right. The Catholic Church, the Cardinals, the Pope, you know, the Holy See, they're trying to get Father Marin's writings and all of his, you know, beliefs about evil banished, right? Disproven. So they're setting him up for that. So, yeah, that's what he's investigating. However, he agrees with Father Marin. He believes what Father Marin has to say. Yes. And in particular about this like idea of the collective unconscious and like people and technology will be able to defeat evil by synchronizing essentially. And so in his investigation, he discovers a a bit of Father Marin's past in these sort of like vision quests where back in the day, Father Marin was in Africa and he did an exorcism on a child uh, who was like a, a healer as well. And so this is the great disturbing thing that like Father Lamont discovers is that this this healer child who could like fight the locusts was perhaps attracting the evil because he was so good. Uh, and so this is what Father Lamont thinks is like happening with regards to Reagan and Pazuzu, it's all related, right? And so he goes in search of 
Kokumo. And this includes this like crazy sequence where he meets him in a dream and James Earl Jones, maybe a dream, and James Earl Jones is wearing like a locust costume. And it is Which the, was wild. It's the craziest shit. It's amazing. Yeah. I call upon you in the name of Father Lancaster Mary. How did you find me? I saw you in the mind of a girl who was possessed by Pazuzu. She is still in danger of dreams. How can I help her? Which girl would you help? The one possessed by Pazuzu or the one held by Father Merrin? You must pluck out her evil heart. But Pazuzu has brushed you with his wings. You called on Pazuzu to reach me. You have lost faith in your God. You do not believe. I do believe. I do. I'd do anything to help Reagan, anything. Then prove your faith. Cross over. My faith is in Jesus Christ, reborn. Prove it. Cross over. Step out of your despair. If Pozuzu comes for you, I will spit a leopard. And then Father Lamont in this like dreamlike space then just like goes face down on a bed of spikes to prove that he hasn't lost faith in God. I mean, it's in yeah. so this movie goes to crazy places, right? Um, but then it's like smash cuts to him meeting the quote unquote real Kakumo, who's an entomologist studying locusts, of course, also played by James Earl Jones. Uh, and that's when James Earl Jones sort of gives Father Lamont, you know, the breakdown of what's going on in his locust research and how swarms happen. And right, they're sort of, you know, likening locust swarms to this great evil, right? Uh, where wings just brush up against each other and cause this great evil, but there are some grasshoppers that resist, you know? So, again, it's this whole just like... <laughs> well, yeah, it's the classic, like, in, you know, f philosophy or theosophy, that problem of evil, right? Yeah. The people who've used the problem of evil to justify the existence of God, right? That, like, okay, people say, well, if there's a great big God, you know, and he's all-knowing and all-powerful, why does he allow evil? Why doesn't he just crush it out, you know? And the, you know, theosopher or philosopher who would like to prove that God exists responds to that problem of evil by saying evil exists so that good has more value and has more weight, right? Without the two, either is meaningless, but it's because the two exist that we derive meaning from goodness or from evil and specifically like the choices we make and who we are, you know? So if anything, like it's, it's like this film is actually like grappling with, as Scorsese would even say, you know, like these, you know, big Catholic issues and questions of, of good and evil in a biblical sense. Uh, I think more so even than the first film, which is just like, she's puking, like, you know, like, what do we do? I don't know, throw her out a window or whatever. Fuck, I don't know. It's like, beat her up, you know? Like, it's like, yeah. I, you know, I will say it. Like, I, I think that, yeah, th this film, when it presents that stuff, is presenting it to us in a way that, like, we can play with it 
more than we can in the first film. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like Borman's greatest sin is like taking this stuff kind of seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and I think. In his own weird way. In his, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. In his own strange mystical way. I mean, this motherfucker made Zardoz, right? One of the weirdest films ever made oh, yeah. just before this. So he was on like already this crazy vision vision quest yeah. in the 70s and as you mentioned the film for him that would follow this excalibur yeah. is perhaps the most mystical version of excalibur most cosmic version that's ever been presented you know i mean it's a hallucinatory film yes and i love it it's my favorite version of, of i love it king arthur you know in cinema but you know I, to, to a point that you brought up ryan and i think it's sort of summarizing this experience for us and and who we are you know it reminds me of what adorno once wrote you know one thing he wrote not like you know (laughs) he wrote a lot of shit right but anyway like the thing that i'm referring to is when he sort of talks about like franchises he doesn't use that specific term but you know he talks about you know like tv and movies and the expectations people have and he compares it to like a sort of roller coaster ride this was way before fucking scorsese did that uh but adorno was saying that you know the problem that the the public has with this is that they 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 want that experience of being on rails you know they want the roller coaster ride that's predetermined for them you know they want the thrills and everything but if you think about it the reason he refers to it as a roller coaster ride is that because any person who gets on that roller coaster ride is going to experience it the exact same way as everyone else who got on the roller coaster ride, right? Say it's going to flip at the same time, it's going to twist at the same time, you know, and everything. But that experience then like carries on to, to subsequent bits of media and films, right? They want every film to be exactly like that and to feel exactly like that. And and Adorno says that when people you know, when they encounter something that sort of like goes off the rails, when it breaks the mold, people respond in like two ways. One of them is revulsion, you know, and that's what audiences have responded to with with these films and, you know, particularly with Exorcist 2, this idea of like, we didn't get what we signed up for, you know, like we expected this and we didn't get it and they were they were reviled by it. It was just like revulsion. But he says the other experience for certain people who engage with media, when they encounter something that goes completely off the rails and defies all of their expectations, it's a feeling of euphoria. This discovery of something you had not seen. It's unfortunate for us, though, that as Adorno saying, the, the, the mass audience will experience that revulsion. They'll reject it. You know, the heretic, they just want it burned. Right. I think we should, you know, face our fears and face the shadow. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess like both of these films demonstrate that, you know, I, I've seen the original Halloween so many times. I always think of the classroom scene because that's sort of like a classic trope as well. But in the original, if you remember what the teacher is saying, fate is immovable like a mountain. And yet I think both of these films demonstrated that that is not true because the fates of Halloween and The Exorcist were movable to great revulsion. (laughs) (laughs) And your euphoria. And our euphoria. Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, Exorcist 2, Heretic, better than I remembered. 
And I already was like, you know, felt like the lone voice in the wilderness. And Halloween Resurrection, I had a ball. I was pleasantly surprised. It was not uh, necessarily what I was expecting. It felt like an MTV film mm-hmm. in a good way. Uh, yeah. With with that sort of early 2000s vibe. It had that demen- that dimension films like yeah. gloss. Yep. That is sheen, so, yeah. yes, it's so nostalgic to me. Like yeah. d- dimension films, turn of the turn of the century, like look, oh, I loved it. It was all there. Yeah, without a doubt. Uh, well, and to, to respond then to that, you know, to the cases you've made, I will, you know, I rule in both of your favors because uh, I was you, very, sir. very, very surprised <laughs> by the choices. Guilty. I knew going into it this week that, like, you know, I was so excited because, you know, I, I just was like, I want something something bonkers from both of you. I want something out there from both of you. And, and you both defied what I expected in terms of what you were going to bring. And then, you know, I, I, I really, really, really um, enjoyed both of these films, like, uh, tremendously, you know? And I was quite, quite impressed with them. I had, you know, it had been way too long since I'd seen Resurrection. I think I saw it, like, when it came out, so I barely remembered it. Right. Um, and Heretic, I'd seen, God, yeah, probably 15, maybe 20 years ago as well. And, and only thing I remembered from it was the locust flying sequences like several yes yes those were like the only things that was really seared in my brain but going back and engaging with them now and especially with this prompt like i was um yeah i was i was completely completely uh taken aback by them in in very good ways well it was a tough prompt because i think you know internet culture has afforded us the ability to more easily reshape the canon like at large i mean it, it it's pretty astounding now that i'm you know get, getting older and going like wow yeah movies really can get reclaimed or rediscovered right because we're long past the age when like saying heaven's gate or ishtar is good is controversial mm-hmm. i remember yeah. i was saying they were good like 15 years ago uh when that was less common or whatever but yeah you know so i think borman in particular for me is still an underrated director i know people have reverence for a lot of his films whether it's Point Blank or Deliverance or Excalibur, but there's a lot of other really good films in his filmography that I think, uh, especially if you watch them all together, because that's really when I got like, you know, heretic pilled was I did like a whole Borman thing probably like, you know, 10 years ago and I became obsessed with him and seeing how all his films fit together and how consistent his vision is, however bombastic, but how consistent it is over time, I think is really impressive. And it's not like he just makes crazy spiritual films either because he's made some great World War II films oh, yeah. as well uh, and and a bunch of other stuff. So I want to not just reclaim Heretic, but I want to, yeah, I want to elevate Borman. Watch his films, people. He made some really good ones. But yeah, it was, it was a difficult prompt because I was like getting demoralized at first when I was going through like everything I've braided on letterbox to try and jog my memory and i was like i wish i was more controversial like i wish i was like at war with the consensus or at least like the um the collective reappraisal consensus there's no such thing as a consensus anymore that's the problem it's not your fault that look you can find any film that has 
ardent supporters in this day and age. Almost any film. Yeah, almost any. <laughs> I will, like, scrolling through the... Because I was like, what do the users think of Halloween Resurrection today? And still, like, I there, I was not seeing anybody trying to make the argument that, like, they legitimately thought it was good. More just, well, I, I had fun. You know, like, it, it's clearly the worst, but I had a good time. But I'm like, no, I really think this film has ambition. Well, that was, like, key, too, I think, to the prompt, was trying to find films that weren't, like, so bad it's good, but, like, this is good. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah. The Green Slime by Kenji <laughs> Fukasaku. You think it's a mystery science theater thing? Fine. I don't. Green Slime! And that's it, right? Because, yeah, we've, you know, we've gone through those phases as, like, a culture of, you know, like, at, at various points, you know, being very ironic with what we like, and then some saying, now we've become post-ironic, you know, where everyone just is like, no, I, I genuinely, really, I don't like it because it's funny to like it, you know? And I think, like, we're, we've, we've sort of come to that point more, where people are, like, more willing to, to say... I'm not trying to be cool because I'm admitting that this is bad, but I like it. It's like, no, I really fucking like this thing. I think this is a really good film. Yeah, again, I, I love your description about the euphoria because that was what I felt the first time I revisited Halloween Resurrection a couple of years ago. Like, every time it cut to the webcam footage, I felt like a dopamine rush. I was like, this looks crazy. Like, nothing else looks like this. Like, what is this movie? You know, so I, it, it has a special place for me because of that. Well, so as the as the guy who's picked this prompt, what where have you found that euphoria yourself? Yeah, um, you know, I, oof, again, you know, as I was even after picking the topic, I was sort of sitting there and being like, okay, well, what would I have brought? You know, what would I bring? And it, I was also kind of like. I don't want to say bummed, but I was also encountering that thing where I'm just like, yeah, everything, everyone likes this now, you know, everyone thinks this shit's cool now, you know? And so I was like really trying to rack my brain to be like, what's something that I do genuinely like, uh, that I get a kick out of watching that I don't really see a lot of people talking about today. And I, I think the, the one film that like just sort of kept bouncing in around in my brain was, was, uh, Caligula with Malcolm McDowell, oh which is a is an absolutely hated movie. But yeah, I've never people. seen it. You've never seen Caligula? No, I know about it, of course. Oh my goodness! I mean, yes, it's filthy. It's fucked up. It's 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 all the things that people say it is. But to me, it's also, I think, just a, a beautiful monstrosity. And a very unique film and has unbelievable production design. I mean, absolutely, some of the sequences in that film are, I think, rival, you know, any other great film you can think of that has amazing production design or period detail. Like, that film has, you know, weird Italian craftsmanship in it. It's got Bob Guccione, you know, shoving in hardcore sex scenes. And then amidst all that, you have all these fucking like Shakespearean actors from England who are playing, you know, you've got Peter O'Toole in there. You've got John Gielgud, Malcolm McDowell. I mean, Helen Mirren's in there. I mean, you have this amazing cast and it's so twisted and disgusting 
But I think that's what so many people have missed out on that. You know, it originally comes from a screenplay by Gore Vidal. His vision of Rome and specifically like using Caligula, this this twisted emperor uh, to to sort of criticize politics, consumerism, culture, sex, you know, all these things. Like to me, I, I I think it's 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 an incredibly fascinating, interesting film, and way it's just completely overshadowed though by the the hardcore sex sequences and you know that yeah you know throws a lot of people <laughs> off you know. All right, well uh, it was Andy's topic this week and next week it's Ryan's. So what do you got for us this time? Well, over the past week I was going through some old high eight tapes that my mom found like in a closet and I was just like converting them to digital so I could send them to her and just like rediscovering some childhood memories there was a like a fun like just an amusing vacation video we took to Indiana Beach you know like a very wholesome and like humble midwestern vacation and yeah I was going through it and you know feeling very nostalgic and thinking about growing up and so it was a it was a fun feeling and that's sort of what I want you guys to to bring next week give me um give me some portraits of childhood let's hang out with the kids for once we've had some mean adults um I mean these kids can be mean too um but uh yeah let's uh let's let's go back a little bit let's head back to childhood and um yeah that's it portraits of childhood Sounds very nice. Right? <laughs> As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email if you have any thoughts at Gauntlet Movie Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Fucking idiot. Find another view quickly, oh, please. Hey, relax. This is going really well. Really? Yes. We are doing our thing. Okay. The entertainment. Saloon. <laughs> Come, fly the teeth, teeth of the, of the wind. wind. Share my wings. <laughs> <laughs>